Alrighty then. Hello everyone. Welcome to this, this week's episode of Language and Me. This is our seventh episode. And for this episode, we'll be talking about emergent bilinguals and bilingual education. My name is Emily. I'm Manny. I'm Madison. And I'm Teddy. Alrighty, y'all. Um, so I guess a large topic of this week was really looking at like the historical implications of um, the different policies that affected bilingual education. Um, do y'all want to share some of them? Uh, yeah, I can start off with Brown versus Board of Education. And so um, Brown versus Board of Education was when they decided that schools can no longer be legally, like schools can no longer be segregated. And it was the initial federal decision on segregation in schools and like, yeah, did your um, uh, segregation and it specifically addressed anti-black segregation in the South where they had laws promoting it and it said that that's not allowed anymore. Um, the policy I talked about was um, <clears throat> the 1998 California proposition, proposition 227 bill. And for those of you who don't know what it is, um, Proposition 227 was a California ballot proposition that was passed on June 2nd, 1998. And in the ballot, you were required to say yes or no to a question that said, that required California public schools to teach, uh, um, uh, I'm sorry, LEP students in special cases that are nearly taught in all English. So basically meaning that bilingual education was not allowed in the classroom. In the classrooms in all schools, unless in very special circumstances, which was really, really small. So um, basically just uh, had the effect of eliminating all bilingual classes. Yeah, so the first one, we, we start with uh, anti-Black segregation, and then we move into policies preventing Spanish speakers and all people whose first language is in English from learning the way they need to. And then we move into everyone's best friend, no child left behind, that said it was uh, trying to provide education for all students that was better and more effective, um, but they used monetary incentive for the schools that were already struggling. So they'd give more supplies to schools that did better. Um, so then when the schools that were already struggling continued to do poorly, they didn't receive the new supplies that they would have needed to do better. And uh, it became a self-perpetuating cycle. No Child Left Behind is also the originator of standardized testing nationwide, which of course negatively impacts minority populations significantly. And after No Child Left Behind, we move into President Obama's Race to the Top program, which was in 2009, um, is when they like put it into action. And it's kind of, it's building off of No Child Left Behind, but it's changing the way the school funding works specifically. And so it's trying to give more funding to the schools that are struggling so that they can give better education to their students instead of ending up like giving them less funding. And so I wanted to find out a little bit more 
more information about this program. So when I looked it up, I found the criteria that schools needed to meet in order to receive more funding. And it includes improvement of assessments and more rigorous standards for schools, the turnaround of failing schools through increased emphasis on resource, through increased emphasis, sorry, through increased emphasis on resources and also support that allows teachers and staff to be more effective. And then they also, it really focuses on better methods for tracking progress of students and teachers. And as of now, 46 of 50 states have submitted plans for reform and a number of them have received funding from the program um, in order to complete their reforms. The source that I found didn't say how many of them have received funding. So I'm not sure exactly how many of the 46 states have funding. And it said that Race to the Top has been successful for some schools and school districts. Yeah, and going off from the Race um, from here, <clears throat> from the Race to the Top program, we have the Every Student Succeeds Act, um, and this um, the what I would refer to as ESSA. ESSA was um, signed in 2015 by President Obama to replace No Child Left Behind. Um, and when I was doing more research about it, um, it basically um, moved Title III funding um, about for like language instruction for English learners and immigrant students to Title I. Um, and so this shifts the accountability factor. And so we see that um, schools are now held accountable through the law for their bilingual education programs. Um, there's also a discussion about how <laughs> um, um, <clears throat> different resources um, to help integrate the local community with the actual, um, with the school community. So trying to bridge like those gaps. Um, so there's also, um, it's, it also creates like a process to identify English learners uniformly across the country um, as this was not the case before. Um, and it'll allow schools, you know, to collect data, testing data for students. And um, this data can be this, this, this this aggregated from like from different populations within the English learner students um, within the emergent bilinguals so we could have emergent bilinguals with disabilities um, so on and so forth is separate the data can be separate um, from one another and so those were um, some of like the highlights of the um, that every student succeeds uh, at. <clears throat> So like going on um, the, like doing our own research about like these, the different historical policies and like the reading, um, you know, talks about this, but we also did our own research, but going into the action of um, like the different pro like types of programs or different types of like pedagogies that are like used within classrooms. Um, there's like a different, there's like a range of them. Um, so I wanted to start off with like the first couple ones. And um, so we see that the first one is non-recognition, submersive or sink, sink or swim. So this program in itself does not provide alternative educational services or don't, uh, doesn't uh, acknowledge students, students' home languages. So therefore English is really, really pushed upon this um, and this pedagogy. Um, we also have the pullout uh, English as a second language um, or English as a new language. Um, and so this pullout um, 
provide student support for students in specific sessions. Um, and like the home language is sometimes supported, but like mainly English is used, especially those who are considered ESL teachers. Great. Um, and another one of the programs um, is the high intensity language program, which this program focuses on intensive instruction in like the features of English. So it's I'm pretty sure mostly in like high schools they use this, but it's extent intensive instruction in the English lexicon, phonology, morphology, syntax, and it's yeah typically only in English. Going after what Madison said, um, it is more in high school where like it is mostly English oriented, and it focuses like 100% in, in in English. Because I had some friends, I had some cousins that came from Mexico and they joined the ESL program here right when they arrived. And they were shocked to the point where like, they didn't want to go to school anymore because the classrooms were all in English. The teachers were monolinguals. They only spoke English. Um, and Spanish was not like, it wasn't talked about like, they did not use their home language in the classrooms when that's what you think uh, bilingual education is and ESL education. But I don't know. I just found that a little bit shocking that even as a beginner, not knowing English at all in high school, they are forced to adapt to the all English classes, all English community, even with like just a little support system from their guidance counselor because I remember them saying that only their guidance counselor spoke Spanish and not even their teachers spoke Spanish so they had a really tough time communicating with the teachers and with the rest of the students who are actually speaking Spanish as well as well so they all helped each other out you know at the beginning and yeah that's something that I just felt like sharing at the moment that reminds me of like it's almost like a cruel version of the immersion so-called foreign language classes but where like if if I went to high school here and I took German class from a German professor and it was all in German that would be normal immersion but suddenly being dropped into this new place and additionally having that deep immersion with no acknowledgement that's just that sounds so hard and so unnecessarily cruel yeah i completely agree with that that's so unnecessarily cruel to the students and something else like going off of that that's in its own way it's also cruel is the um early exit bilingual education programs because well there is the element of the home language and they are able to to use the home language and are kind of taught in it. The program mostly focuses on students acquiring English and seeing how fast they can move students into the English only classroom. So in my opinion, that's also very cruel to the students because you're just trying to get them into the mainstream English classroom as fast as possible. Exactly. And like that doesn't really even do anything for their own like education and learning of the language. But I guess like on the opposite end, um, the article does cover, um, it doesn't even, like, the, the one that Madison was just, like, mentioning, the, uh, it doesn't even recognize, like, the cultural, you know, uh, like, moving so fast does not even do any, like, 
to push them into English only classes does not do anything for their learning of the language. Like that pressure, you know, does not like, it doesn't allow them to really grasp the language, right? And so it's like important to think of like, like the stress or the constant like anxiety that these students will be under if they're like constantly pressured to learn English. Um, but on the other side of like, <clears throat> of like these like harsher or like non-inclusive pedagogies, we do have um, two that the article mentions. It was like, I believe it was like the two-way bilingual education. <laughs> and um, this supports fluency in both of the languages. Um, and we also have dynamic bi-plural plural lingual um, education. Um, and so this is like, where the student can use English and home language as chosen by the student. Um, and then there's also like peer teaching. So this reminded me a lot of like our conversation of translanguaging from like last week or like two weeks ago. Um, so yeah. And I think something else important to note is like we go through this, the rest of this podcast and continue talking is how the number of emergent bilinguals has been growing and it's grown a lot between 1992 and 2002 and it's grown a lot like between then and now but the proportion of students enrolled in bilingual education programs has been declining and we like we need better bilingual education programs and we need more schools to offer bilingual education programs so that each student has the opportunity to be in that if that's what they need. Yeah, that's the uh, the bilingual approaches that Emily just talked about. As you were talking, it, it really made it more clear to me of how the other policies are all from this position of English superiority. And the way that the policies are written, it's as well you need English to succeed in America so we're just providing that for you but it all has that English supremacy aspect to it that if you actually use the home language and acknowledge that it's a language that people use and it matters and could be used academically and so on then it it takes that away that that idea of inherent English supremacy. Yeah, and I think that like largely connects to um, the next, like the video that we were watching on um, revisiting and reimagining Castaneda versus Pickard in um, 1981 and how they talked about like the effects of the past and how it affects like the future, or the effects of present and the future, um, especially how um, the Castaneda and versus Picker case um, provided like this three prong like um, structure framework um, for like bilingual programs in order to for them to be considered like actually sufficient. Um, so I think it was just, it's just interesting, but also just still the amount of work that has to be done. I agree with that, like from the video, um, the video to me really highlighted how bilingual education is changing and has been changing throughout history and how we're like, we're in this stage where we're moving from this English supremacy or English superiority and English only programs and moving towards being a lot more inclusive of other languages in the education setting. And I know in the 
video, they mentioned certain states like reversing the oppressive laws that they had in place. We've also talked about that in class. And then another thing that like just stood out to me was how like Castaneda is necessary for providing a framework, but it's still not sufficient. And we need to keep pushing for language equity and bilingual education. Sort of like towards what Madison was saying, something that surprised me in the video as well, was like that how, how how some states are revisiting their policies and everything like that while other states are like growing their bilingual education programs their ESO programs adding more languages and I believe it was for this class a couple of readings ago um we read about how the one schools in that one poor district um were adding French to their bilingual program so that the parents could move there. And here in Champaign, one of the schools is actually like adding French and German to their bilingual programs, which is something you would not see about 10 years ago because 10 years ago, it was just, uh, just the basic Spanish bilingual programs. And now like 2021, everything's changing. I don't know, like for me personally, it is shocking seeing that they're adding all these different diverse languages to their program, growing these programs, like, and then students are more like, what's the word, like convinced or like motivated to join these programs to learn more about these languages, cultures and everything like that. And that is something that really, really stood out to me. Even like, even after a couple of weeks of knowing this information, it, it is still pretty shocking to me every single time I hear about it. I think that's really cool that schools around here are adding German and French to their bilingual programs. While you were talking, I just kind of, I started thinking about another part of the video and it's it was how some states are moving towards inclusivity of language, which would be Illinois and specifically like what you were talking about in the Champaign Champaign-Urbana area where they're adding more languages to their bilingual programs, but then there's still some states who have these outdated models of bilingual education and are not like working towards fixing them, such as like Florida was mentioned in the video, how they have the outdated models of bilingual education and how like the teacher education models are based on those outdated models. So like I, like, I think it's really amazing when you hear about like the places that are doing it. I just wish that more places were doing it and that more states were like looking at their policies and changing them. I was thinking about that too, Madison, that like we're not saying that the states that are doing more bilingual policy have it perfect yet, but the clear difference between states that are actually trying to make policies that help all students and then states that are still making policies that hurt students and just like completely ignore their language differences or it, it reminds me of I was looking into um, school segregation in northern states because I couldn't remember if Illinois like ever had school segregation as a law and I couldn't find anything because everything was about how uh, oh yes, all the northern states when Brown versus Board happened, they all had already fixed it, but the South, they were all behind. But like 
that doesn't mean that the North had it perfect either, you know? No, yeah, that's definitely interesting um, to see, like, <clears throat> the various ways in which these programs exist. But also, it's interesting as in if, like, how they're all kind of, like, the history of them, especially, like, them, like, the history of, like, programs being, like, neglected, like, bilingual programs, um, especially, it just kind of, like, the, the podcast um, with Nelson Flores, um, they talk about a lot about how um, like this intersection between race, culture, and language, right? And like, these are conversations that like we've, we've already kind of discussed, but I think it's still important to bring it to mind, especially like when we're looking at what programs are not being funded, right? And like what communities of what communities are being targeted in this like lack of funding, right? So that's that that's predominantly communities of color, immigrant communities, um, and those who are <clears throat> can be most vulnerable within um, within society. And so, um, I really liked how um, like Nelson Flores went into like kind of the history and how like um, how this course was like kind of changed between like. Um, like language and connection to biology and then like how these like it's kind of been used to like justify like um, how cultural differences um, within like communities of color like to justify like the formation of like deficit perspectives um, when looking at like languages other than English and like what communities those languages are tied to that like before listening to this podcast I didn't realize how um they were like all like super like connected together those ideas and how bilingual education has been shaped by race and racism um because of the fact that people have prejudices against those who speak different languages and how like historically in the U.S. other languages and like speaking a language other than English has been used to justify why people of color are inferior. Like I didn't realize that language was used like as a justification and that that then played a part in how education was structured, how bilingual education was structured and how we're still fighting that today, I guess. Yeah, and I think like the way that Nelson, like they're, they're the specific quote, like really, I think does a great, great job of summarizing it. So this is what Nelson Flores says. Ideologies that co-construct race and language that, fra that phrase minoritized communities, language practices as deficient. <laughs> and so we see um, how like, they even gave the example of how like um, different types of bilingualism is valued within society. So we see how bilingual classes are, um, how bilingual classes are not learning like if you're learning English, like as ESL, like as an emergent, I mean, like as an emergent bilingual, then you're not as valued or celebrated as like white middle-class students who are learning English as a second language, right? And so we see this different in like the celebration of bilingualism um, within society. I just think it's really sad that we like celebrate one group just based on their skin color for learning another language, but then we put down another one because they don't speak the one we do. Like it just... We should celebrate everyone for learning a new language or knowing one language or for whatever their linguistic capabilities are. This is like semi unrelated, but um, 
I was talking to my mom the other day about bilingual stuff and Spanish specifically, because she had a coworker for a while that used to report herself as Hispanic on forms that had that as the, the listing for Latina. And she would put it because her grandpa was from Spain. Um, so I guess in, in part connecting to what you were just saying about specifically skin tone affecting the way that you're treated within society. I don't think that this woman knew very much Spanish, but if she told people that it would be taken in a very different way than if someone who wasn't blonde and really pale said the same thing. And it still shocks me the complete misunderstanding that she had of being Latina versus being so she used it for scholarships, like for college. Wow. So she was like claiming um, that she was Latina, right? That I'm like, sorry, I'm trying to like process it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She was marking, you know how uh, they make the forms really stupid, how you have to pick white and then under it, you have to pick that you're Latina. She was doing that and picking both of them. And just not understanding at all that there's there's a big difference there. And the like scholarships are meant to help people who need that extra money and who are from disadvantaged communities. So if you report yourself as Latina and you're not, then you're taking that money from someone who is and could use it. Just amazes me. When you were giving that example, that reminded me that someone who went to my high school actually did the exact same thing and like marked that they were Hispanic or Latino on their like scholarships, on their college applications, even though they're not. And they also were someone who was very rich and they didn't, they didn't need the scholarships or the money. And it just, it didn't. And I think they got most of them too. So that's just honestly really frustrating. And sad that people actually take advantage of these type of situations. Like, like you should like just let them have like not the people lying, like the actual Hispanic Latino people. Let them have it. Like there are partnerships that as you know, Hispanics like may not qualify for. And these are specifically that are targeted to us, like, give us a chance to like get some money for college. Like, like uh, I think it was Matt mentioned that or someone about the one girl that was rich and like got the scholarship, like have the money for it and have to take out loans and all that to pay for college. And when you do have the resources, you do. Have have the finances and you know other students like coming from bad neighborhoods um, low-income neighborhoods and other states or cities um, they're the ones that actually want to go to college and actually put in the effort to these scholarships and to lose it for to lose it to lose a scholarship for a person that is lying lying to the committee lying the 
lying about their identity, you know, like, that's not fair, like, play fair, play your own game, like, just leave that, I don't know, like, leave that type of stuff alone, like, do not play with your race, do not claim to be someone who you are not, like, that's really frustrating, and, like, I don't know, like, if I knew the person, I would, like, say something, like, hey, like, that's not fair, or, like, to the point where, like, you know, say something to the school or something. I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. I actually, actually don't know what I would do in that situation if I knew someone. But I would, I mean, I'm frustrated now just hearing about it. But imagine how it would be when you actually know a person doing that. And, yeah. Yeah, I didn't, like, know the person very closely but I just remember hearing about that and I was so frustrated about it I was like you can't do that like why are you doing that but also if anyone had even told my school district about it they wouldn't have done anything everyone who was in power in my the school district I went to just like to sweep everything under the rug so even if someone had done that that wouldn't have done anything I was just gonna apologize for like springing that on you I should have thought how angry that would make you because if it makes me angry then uh so i apologize oh, no, no, I need to apologize. you're just sharing like real life experiences like, yeah that is necessary to like to share like i'm not I'm, like mad mad like frustrated like Ugh. like i'm just like <laughs> like i don't know like annoyed at the fact you know like it's whatever now but like it happened it happened but it is like important to share your own experiences if you know anything like that, you know? Okay, as long as we're cool. We are, 100%. Experiences are experiences. Sweet. Yeah, um, I think experiences are, are necessary in order to really, I think experiences are powerful to really back up like what we're talking about. So that's good that like you you mentioned them. Um, but I was gonna say that I think that like the conversation just goes into this larger discussion, right? So we we know that um so um Nelson Flores um they talked a lot about of like at the end of like what can classroom teachers do, right? Like questioning your position as a classroom teacher, what can you control? And like, what stance are you taking towards language diversity? So those were like the two questions that they posed. Um, but at the larger spectrum, like they talked about how, you know, it's not the responsibility of just of a classroom teacher to really solve the issues that are going on with bilingual education, but rather it's just a much larger structural issue um, that is present within our education system along with all the other ones right and so I think I really liked how they made that distinction between um between like in the classroom versus like structural um because I think that that's like a big piece because a lot of like these policies are beyond the classroom itself but rather within the structure of like 
the American education system. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree with that. I think from the podcast, like the biggest thing that stood out for me was what are the things you can control and what stance are you taking towards language diversity in your classroom that shows students that you care about all of their linguistic capabilities like do you have books about it have you shown videos like I don't know there's just a lot of things that teachers can do but at the same time teachers can only do so much because this is a larger structural issue um thank you all for tuning in um, next week, we'll be talking about literacies of multilinguals, um, so stay tuned for that episode. But until then, take care of yourselves, stay healthy, everyone, and have a good rest of your night.